We've worked with Project SOAR for years. Uh, college students mentor fourth through eighth graders in the community who uh, social workers in Evanston have identified as needing mentorship. And right now they're in desperate need of students, particularly uh, men. So if you're a college student and you want to invest in the life uh, of a student in the community, go see uh, Project SOAR out in the lobby. They're, they're a great um, uh, program that we, we partnership. Before we get into the word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are in a, a time where it seems like devastation upon devastation keeps coming. And we know you're sovereign and you're in control. And we are encouraged that even in the midst of the devastation, many are worshiping you today. Today in uh, Mexico, many believers are gathered together to, to mourn, to worship, and to rebuild. And may you encourage them as they worship you through their pain. And those in the Caribbean and in Puerto Rico, people are gathering in churches today with no power, no AC, nothing. And they're worshiping you through, through suffering and devastation, not knowing when things are going to be fixed. We praise you for their lives. May you encourage them today in their worship. And may, may their lives encourage and inspire us when we go through difficulties and, and devastating times that we will, we will praise you in the storm. We will worship you and be about your kingdom no matter what's going on. And I pray for those who may be here today who are going through one of those periods of time, a season of suffering. May they worship you regardless of what they feel. And may you do a significant work this morning through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Once again, I'd like to welcome back the Northwestern students, particularly the, the freshmen. We're glad you're here. What we do on Sunday morning is quite simple. We study through books of the Bible, and right now you've happened to come while we're doing Song of Songs. It's a book about romance, love, and sex. It's about passion and purity. Some scholars believe that the Song of Songs is written to young single women to teach them about passion and yet purity before marriage. Just like the book of Proverbs will be written to young single men about how to avoid the adulteress and to stay pure and to marry the Proverbs 31 woman. Both books basically are saying there is passion in marriage, but passion in check before marriage. Basically, if you're single, the books are saying, calm down. And if you're married, the books are saying, let loose. If you're single this morning and you hear that, you may think, that is not fair. Why do we have to calm down while the marrieds get to let loose? And you may think, it's not fair to preach Song of Songs and to tell you, too bad for you, and to make fun of you. No, we're not trying to do that. But what we're trying to do is say, hey, passion, sex, in marriage between a man and a woman is a beautiful, God-created thing. And if you are single and you have a desire for sex in marriage, we talked last week on how the desire is not necessarily demonic, right? It, it could 
It can definitely become demonic as it becomes a disordered desire. But if you want to get married one day and have sex in marriage, that is a, a good God-created desire that must be in check during this season in your life. That's why Song of Song is about passion and purity. It, there's this famous book I read back in college by Elizabeth Elliot called Passion and Purity. That's uh, probably many years ago I read that. I'm, gonna, I'm just seeing a show of hands. Anybody else read that book? What, what I find encouraging about this book is that I read it, and it was not even my generation, it was before, and people before my generation read it, and people of this generation read it, I would encourage you to read it. It's, it's, a, it's a famous story about Elizabeth Elliot and her, and her husband, uh, future husband, Jim Elliot, who's a famous missionary, you can read his story at another time, but how these two um, basically uh, courted, uh, he courted her, it talks about their ups and downs and their courtship, it talks about their, their coming together in marriage, and it talks a lot about passion and purity. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, passion and purity. So let's go ahead and turn to the book of Song of Songs. See if you can find it if you don't already have it up right now. Song of Songs, we're in chapter 1. We started last week. For those of you who weren't here, it is a song about the growing relationship between a man and woman who are in love and want to get married. It's an intimate encounter that includes their desire for one another and even their sexual desire. It's a biblical book, so we must set it in the context of the whole Bible. Let me give you this lengthy statement that helps us set this in the uh, context of the Bible. I'll put it up for you. Song of Songs shows us a romance that celebrates God's gift of love, pleasure, and fidelity, while simultaneously pointing forward to the perfection of love and someone greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. Basically, that means big picture. In the Old Testament, God is depicted in marriage with his people, Israel. And in the New Testament, it's Christ and the church, where, where Christ, uh, the church is depicted as the bride of Christ. So we want to keep coming back to thinking about the ultimate love of Jesus. That's why the series is called Longing for Love, Looking for to Christ. And the section we're in today is passion and purity. To summarize it, it's this mutual delight. We're going to see this bride and bridegroom exchange praises, but they're careful not to awaken love before it's time. So let's start with our mutual admiration. Let's jump in, chapter 1, look at verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Once again, this could be a reference to a King Solomon, as he's the king, with his first wife before he went off the rails. Or maybe this is a poem written by Solomon who describes a general love story between a man and a woman. In that case, the woman calls her man uh, a king. It could be like a husband and wife calling each other uh, queen and king. Like, my wife is the queen, I am the king, and our children are the unruly peasants. <laughs> In either case, verse 12, the king is lounging uh, on the couch eating dinner, 
And her perfume, uh, that's the nard, it's a fragrance from a, from a plant, is giving forth this delightful smell. Now, they're not married yet. Uh, they're probably not married yet. And, and the part of her that he can now have is her smell. So he's like, ah, oh, my love. That's all I can have right now. That's where he's at. And the woman continues on this theme of smells and wants you to know about, more about the one she loves. Look at verse 13. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Now, for those of you who have the Bible, you want to make sure yep, that we are reading the Bible right now. Just making sure. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. She's looking ahead to their married life together, and she wants him to lay between her breasts like a sachet of myrrh. And the thought is that a woman would wear this, this bag or, or sachet around her neck filled with myrrh, which would be a nice tree fragrance so that she would smell delightful in the morning. But instead of having this delightful smelling sachet of myrrh lying on her, she wants this man with her. She goes further in calling him a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. What does that mean? Well, the vineyards of Engedi are, are near the desolate Dead Sea. You think about the Dead Sea, it's a, it's a dry place, and then you see this oasis filled with these flowers that smelled like roses. The man she loves is like an oasis filled with blossoms in a dry and desolate land. And his admiration for her is just as strong. Look at verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She's beautiful. It's his love. She's beautiful. Your eyes are doves. I'm not quite sure what that means. But his eyes, you know, her eyes are dove. It must have been something special. And she thinks... He is beautiful as well. Look at verse 16. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Truly delightful. So back and forth they go. It's like, it's like you're beautiful. No. You're beautiful. No. You're more beautiful. No, no, no. You're most beautiful. And you're like, yuck. Yuck, right? Right? It's this mutual delight. They're engaged, they're betrothed, they're exchanging praises. It's like sending one other love notes or text messages filled with emojis and, and words of praise. But then you get married and your words start to change and you start to use a different language. And all this admiration switches to phrases like, I told you so. It's your fault. What's wrong with you? I'm not even sure you're saved. I've actually said that one. I don't recommend that one. <laughs> Can't you be more responsible? You're impossible. That was stupid. If you don't like it, you can just leave. You're such a baby. Those are the clean ones, right? If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. You've probably said some of these things to one another. 
or worse. Like, what, what, what happens? How does that happen? How do we go from all this emotional connection and love and romance, and then we switch over to, to this detached maintenance? How does that happen, right? You're like, we're in love, we're married, and then we switch over to this maintenance mode where we're talking about schedules, we're talking about lists, we're talking about running errands, and that becomes our marriage. And so you'll see marriages often move from this emotional connection of love between a husband and wife to a maintenance mode of roommates. And if your spouse is a roommate instead of a spouse, that can be pretty miserable. One of the things I fear about this whole series is that some of the married people in here will waste Song of Songs. You need to deal with stuff so bad in your marriage between your wife or your husband. You need to deal with your heart. There's stuff that needs to be talked about and you're sitting back hoping you can just kind of skim through this all without having to have interactions, without having to talk about difficult topics that you need to talk about. Do not waste Song of Songs. Do not waste it. It's here for you to talk about stuff in in a context of grace and community. Because if you don't do it now, those words will keep flying at each other like daggers. Let's keep going. Keep going. In the midst of all this mutual admiration, she says, look at there, in the midst of all this, she says at the very end of verse 16, our couch is green. What? I love you, I love you. Our couch is green. Like, what is that talking about? Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Let me explain this to you. It's like she's dreaming of a future. And maybe even time together in the woods and a future intimate encounter. But, but one scholar thinks this is a reference to fertility with a green couch, the house made of cedar and pine. As she dreams about the future, she is dreaming about a future with him and children. She's like, we are going to fill this house with kids. Even before she's married, she's thinking about children. I don't know if those of you, before you got married, if you even talked about kids, you ever thought about kids, but kids are often part of the equation when you get married, and you want to be on the same page. Now, my wife and I, during our very, very, very brief three-month engagement, uh, you know, we talked about having kids, and and for for me, I'm not, I didn't grow up a kid guy, I didn't babysit anybody, never changed diapers, none of that, and so when we talk about kids, I just make jokes, like, yeah, honey, I want to have like, I want to have like 12 kids, like the the 12 tribes of Israel, I want to have 12, you know, kids, like, like the 12 apostles, and I, isn't that funny, ha ha, I would say, isn't that funny, all right, now I have, right now, I now have six kids, and one on the way, it's not funny anymore. No, my wife is not pregnant, but we are adopting another kid, all right? So, yeah, it's not funny anymore. Uh, But uh, you you do want to have these conversations about children before you get married. Because when you start to have kids, it can be very painful, whether it's uh, issues of infertility 
are waiting on an adoption. My wife and I have been waiting on this adoption for over six years. It can be very painful. And then once you have kids, I mean, yes, children can be joy, but they can also be really, really difficult and challenging and create a lot of friction in your marriage. And so before you get married, you need to ask yourself, is this the kind of person I want to have kids with? Can you imagine them praying with your children, reading the Bible to your kids, raising them in the Lord? Now, you may be in love with this person, but really, does this person have any desire at all to, to lead the family and the Lord? It's something you need to talk about. It's often part of the equation. Keep going. Look at the next one. She says in verse 1 of um, chapter 2, she says, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. What she means is, I'm no big deal. I'm just a simple rose among many random lilies in the fields. And what she's doing, she, she's like fishing for a compliment probably. She's, or she's showing her insecurity. But the man will have none of it. And look what he says in verse 2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. He's like, you are a lily that stands out among the thorns. She stands out among all the other women as they are just bland old thorns. And I don't think he's dissing other women as much as he is complimenting this woman. There, there was this guy who, who he, he tried not to lust after other women while he was married. And, and what he would do, he, if he saw an attractive woman, he would spend a lot of time looking for something unattractive on her. And then he would focus on that. That's probably not a good strategy. The strategy of the Song of Songs is he focuses on the one he loves. And he focuses on what's good about her. Now, if you're single, you may go, well, how does that work for me? How do you see beautiful people and not cross the line into lust, but at the same time not shame yourself for acknowledging that someone looks good? keep coming back to Christ, the beauty of Christ. I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this, but there are times in your life where you continue can, can grow in the beauty of Christ and learning about the beauty of Christ, and rather than just saying, I'm going to shame myself for looking at someone attractive, you're going to switch over and say, I'm going to look at Christ. I'm going to focus on the glory of Christ. That's, that's, a, that's a good thought and good wisdom for singles and marrieds. Well, they continue on with this, this mutual uh, admiration, and she counter-punches here in verse 3. She says, uh, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. If you were to look in this dark forest uh, filled with bland trees, he would stand out as the apple tree. He stands out among all the other men as they are just bland old trees in the forest. Once again, I don't think she's dissing other guys as much as a compliment to this man. She loves him so much that she wants to sit under his tree with great delight and taste his fruit, which was sweet to her taste. Now, these are not sexual references uh, those will come later in the book. But these are not sexual references, but are references to protection and covering that she is finding uh, under 
the man, protection and safety. Think back to the, to the undergrad luncheon that many of you went to in the park last week where uh, it was really hot. And if you looked out at the undergrad uh, lunch, most people were sitting under two big trees in the shade. And that's the imagery the woman has that she is finding protection from this man. He's not domineering over her. He's not authoritative over her. He's loving and caring and protecting her. And notice that it's imagery of a fruit tree. These fruit tree uh, references should remind you of Adam and Eve in the garden. And and the great commentary, Matthew Henry, he, he puts it like this. Matthew Henry says, Eve was not made out of Adam's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. And that's what the the husband is to do, is to offer tender, loving protection to his wife. And she continues on with this protection language. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. It's like they are feasting in each other's love at this banqueting house, and she is under his banner. A banner would be like a flag on a pole in a city or a flag carried to war to indicate the identity and authority of the royal king or or army. we, We can see this as well, right? We have flags that fly in Chicago that have a big W on them, right? And the W flags indicate that we want to associate with the Cubs when they win. Now, if they lose, we do not have an L flag, right? There's no association there. But this woman's like, my man always flies the W, never the L. So she wants to place herself under his care. It's a protective care. The Bible tells men in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Don't put them down. Be careful with your words. Be careful with your attitude. Be careful about what you're displaying through nonverbals. And you may think to yourself, well, what's the big deal if I'm harsh with my wife? Well, did you know that there's this verse in the Bible? comes from the book of 1 Peter. It says, if you're harsh with your wife and not loving with her, you know, the Bible says that God will not respond to your prayers. Sometimes I talk to guys and they're like, man, I God's, God's not on my team right now. I don't understand why he's not responding to my prayers. I'm like, tell me a little bit about your relationship with your wife. Acting as if the way he treats his wife has no connection. The Bible makes the connection. You are to be gentle and loving, caring and kind, and protective over your wife in a loving, kind way. Shower her with love. Well, the girl finishes up. The girl finishes up what she wants to say, and she puts it this way in verses 5 and 6. 
She says, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I'm sick with love. <laughs> his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. <laughs> okay, they're not married yet, probably. And what she's doing poetically is expressing her longing and desire for sexual intimacy. We talked about this last week, that these desires are not necessarily demonic at all. They could be good desires. And she goes as far to say that she is sick with love, and she needs some comfort food. <laughs> and here, it's apples and raisins to help her feel better. Perhaps she may choose something else, <laughs> but she picks apples and raisins, uh, which are good celebratory foods that would be at weddings. Her whole life is consumed with love for this man, and she is ready to marry him. And she is not, hear me now, she is not in love with love, She's in love with this man. And she's looking forward to their wedding and the longing. And he, she's looking forward to their, their sexual life together. But then she says, not yet. Hold up. This is the last verse, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This phrase is repeated three times, also in chapter 3, 5, and 8, 4. She's like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Don't rush intimacy. There's a time and a place for passion, and it's in marriage. And, and you kind of wonder if these daughters of Jerusalem, and I understand it's a poetic device here, but these, these daughters of Jerusalem, you, you kind of wonder, are, are they like these these bridesmaids that are, that are helping her get ready for her wedding and, and they hear her talking about all her love and how she can't wait for her wedding night and she says, hello, hold up, hold up, don't rush this. It's, it's like the concept of spoiler alerts. You know, people want to know, I can't stand if people tell me what's going to happen in a movie. I don't want to know, uh, but some people want to know that the, how it ends or a peak of what's next. But, but holding off preserves the innocence and excitement of what's next. I mean, maybe you're one of those people that you never want to see a preview of the next episode. You're like, oh, no, I'm going to wait for the excitement of what's next. And she's saying, don't awaken love until it's time. And I think she's not only talking to these, these women, these daughters of Jerusalem, I think she's also talking to herself. Look at verse 7 again. She says, I adjure you. Adjure means take an oath. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. She wants to take this oath that she will stay pure. She needs to wait for the right time for intimacy and lovemaking, but that cannot come until marriage. And she, but look at the verse again, in verse 7, she wants to take an oath and swear by the gazelles, a small antelope, or the does, female deer of the field. I mean, what does that mean? I swear by this deer that I'll stay pure. I mean, instead of giving them purity rings back then, do they give them purity deer? I mean, I, what, what, is, what does this mean? So I, I was studying it, and um, many scholars proficient in Hebrew, they say that the word gazelles in Hebrew sounds identical to the word host in the title Lord of Hosts. And the phrase, does of the field, sounds very similar to God Almighty. And, and these word plays leave little doubt as to who 
the God that she is swearing to to stay pure. It's an oath and a purity to God. She's urging self-restraint to these girls and to herself as a commitment to God because God has designed sex to be within marriage between a man and a woman, and she is committing to stay pure until then. But when we engage in sex before marriage, often that can numb your conscience. It can create a variety of emotional and relationship issues and also can make you an object of God's judgment. I want to say something uh, a little controversial here, and it doesn't apply to everyone, so don't freak out too much. Um, Most of you have a desire to be married and have intimacy in marriage. But some of you keep falling into sexual morality with someone else. Maybe it's your girlfriend, maybe it's your boyfriend, something else. And you wonder, why does this keep happening? So let me just kind of push the controversy a little bit. Maybe it's because marriage is not on your radar. Marriage is not your priority. Your priority is crank this degree, crank this degree, and probably crank that degree, and then get this job, relocate here, get this job. So marriage is way down on your list of priorities, and you wonder, well, why do I keep falling into sexual morality? It's because maybe you're not even thinking about marriage. It's an afterthought. Ian Dugad puts it like this. I'm going to read this to you. It says, your desire for intimacy, both physical and relational, doesn't go away. As a result, you may find yourself engaging in a string of emotional and sexual affairs in the meantime. By deferring marriage indefinitely, you are setting yourself up for failure. You were made for the intimacy of marriage. And in the absence of the reality, it should not be surprising that the counterfeits seem irresistibly attractive. If you have marriage way down on your party list, you may keep falling into sexual morality. I shared last week that that was my story back in the day, and if that's your story, you know there's forgiveness in Christ. You know there's grace in Christ. You know there, there can be a healing and a reconciliation with, with, with God and, and with others. You, you know that. In Christ, you can be forgiven of your premarital sex or whatever you've been involved in. You can be forgiven in Christ. Because when we talk about passion and purity, you may think, okay, we're just talking about a man and a woman, passion and marriage, purity. For, but we're trying to talk about something bigger. And I think that, that bigger picture we're trying to have in the whole Bible is the, the passion that we see with, with, with Christ, the bridegroom, and the church as his bride. And you can think about the closeness of a husband and wife in marriage and the joy they have, and you can compare it to the closeness that the bride has and the joy the bride has in the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And yet it's not perfect yet. Because that closeness is still awaiting. You would think about someone who is holding off and waiting for marriage. We can experience joy in Christ, relational, passion, intimacy in Christ, and yet we're still waiting for his return. But keep this in mind. Even right now, even though you don't see Jesus, his love for you is perfect. 
his desire to be Lord and lead your life is perfect. And so as we deal with all these relational issues and closeness, we've got to keep coming back, keep coming back to Christ's relationship with the church and Christ's relationship with you as an individual. And you can have joy and closeness with him now. Passion and purity. I read the book in college, Passion and Purity, Elizabeth Elliot. For those of you who don't know the story, Jim Elliot, famous missionary. I won't tell you his story. You can read it later. But this book is about their on-again, off-again dating, courtship, whatever you want to call it. And when I read that book, I thought to myself, I want the passion and purity of Jim and Elizabeth. I want to marry Elizabeth Elliot. Not Elizabeth Elliot, but someone like her. This is very embarrassing to tell you. At the time, I was going to Arkansas Tech University in Russellville, Arkansas. We have a nuclear plant in the town. And uh, maybe, I don't know if it's because of the nuclear plant, but I could not find Elizabeth Elliot. She was not there. And I thought to myself, I, I, I want to get married. I'm in college. I want to get married. I want to find Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth and Elliot and Jim met at Wheaton College. And I thought to myself, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Wheaton College, and I'm going to find Elizabeth Elliot. So, <clears throat> so embarrassing. After my junior year in college, I planned to go to Wheaton College for summer school. Summer school, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going there to find Elizabeth Elliot. And so I pack up my car. It's all packed up, and I drive from Arkansas to Chicago area to Wheaton. And I, and I get there. I'm so excited. I'm thinking, this is great. I'm going to meet Elizabeth Elliot. We're going to get married. It's going to be wonderful. Awesome. So I get there. All the students are gone. Like, no joke. We in college students don't go to school for the summer. So I get there. My first class has like six people in it. And my second class has four people in it. And they're mostly all dudes. I'm like, I'm really disappointed. I, you see, I went there to try to awaken love, right? I went there to try to awaken love. But God was like, not yet. That summer, compared to all other summers is where I grew in the Lord more than any other summer. I was trying to learn how to, what does it mean to read the Bible? What does it mean to memorize Scripture? What does it mean to walk in purity? That summer I learned about reading books, good Christian books, and gathering in fellowship with the church. So I went there to awaken love, but God had other plans to draw me close to Him. And you may kind of be like I am. You're like, now's the time. It's time to wake in love. Let's go. And you look around. You're like, oh, it's not going to work. Christ perhaps trying to get your attention. Now's the time to grow, to mature, and closest with him. And no matter what stage of life you're in, there's always this closest that Christ desires to have with you. He died for you. He rose again so you can know the Father. And he wants this closeness with you. And the imagery we see on this earth, the bride and the bridegroom and the passion and the closeness, God the Father has a heart for you. And he wants to be close with you. And may you find yourself, no matter what phase of life you're in, 
drawing near to him. Let's pray. Father, once again, I know just preaching on relationships creates a lot of tension and problems within people and talking about sex. There's a lot of disordered desires floating around. And even in our marriages, some of our marriages are very hostile right now. So, Father, I just ask that no matter what life situation that we are in or what anybody in here is experiencing, may they draw near to you and you will draw near to them. Let the guy know who's really struggling right now. Let him know that you want a relationship with him, a deep one through faith in Jesus. Let the girl know that may be struggling in despair. Let her know you really want to grow her right now. And may all of us come near to you and be close to you as your pursuit and heart for us is perfect. And in you is perfect love. In Christ's name, amen.